0: One of my favorite holiday movies is the John Hughes classic Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's really a Thanksgiving movie. There aren't very many of those. But in in the movie, Steve Martin and John Candy star as unlikely road buddies, uh, united uh, by unfortunate happenstance in a perpetually frustrated attempt to make it home in time to their respective families for Thanksgiving. And their trip, of course, uh, encounters so many disasters and mishaps along the way that at one point they are cruising down the highway in the dilapidated remains of a rental car that caught fire the night before, and they're singing at the top of their voice, blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining, kind of a defiant cheerfulness despite all the circumstances until, of course, they're pulled over by a highway patrolman, as you might guess. The plot of the entire movie is driven by the singular question, how will this catastrophe of a trip get back on track? How will they ever make it back home? The book of Ruth is driven by a similar concern. Of course, without without playing for laughs and without an endless stream of sight gags, but the story of Israel's life at this point in the period of the judges is a derailed, distracted digression from God's path for them. And the intimate story at the book center of, a widowed, of, of the widowed Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth is similarly racked with difficulty and undesired detours. And the central concern of the story is basically how in the world will God get this story back on track? How will he redeem the mess that these women are in? That's kind of the the narrative uh, tension that carries the book forward. And we'll see exactly how he does that as we look today at the final chapter of Ruth. As Naomi's story concludes in Ruth 4, we'll find three powerful truths about God's grace. Number one, grace provides your needs. Number two, grace restores what you've lost. And number three, grace reaches farther than you know. We'll take those one at a time. I'm going to read for you the first 12 verses, which is really the first scene of chapter 4, and consider together how God's grace provides your needs. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. Grace provides your needs. The scene opens with Boaz at the gate. He's gone to the the gate of the city of Bethlehem. This is where business is conducted. This is where decisions are made and agreements form and witnesses attest to things that take place. He goes and sits at the city gate to signify his intention to have a meeting. He had told Ruth in the middle of the previous night when she had come to him in secrecy and basically proposed marriage, spread the corner of your garment over me. He told her, I will deal with this first thing, right? There is a nearer redeemer. He told her there is a closer relative of Elimelech and I need to give him the first right of refusal. And so sure enough, true to his word, as the sun comes up, Boaz is at the city gate waiting for this redeemer to come by. And as the Lord's providence would have it, the redeemer does come by. And so he draws him aside and has him to sit down. He expects to see the nearer redeemer and he does. And the elders of the town, likely uh, the the male leaders of prominent families in the city, played an important role in the life of a city in this day. Uh, They witnessed business transactions, they settled legal disputes, all sorts of things, uh, before God began appointing particular leaders to, to play these roles for them. And so, with the nearer redeemer at the gate with Boaz, and these ten elders that he has uh, convened around them, the scene is set for Boaz to settle the matter, which is how chapter 3 ended, with Naomi saying to Ruth, he will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so here we find, as the day begins, Boaz is at the gate with the near redeemer, with ten elders of the city gathered around to settle it, to do what is necessary. And the offer that he makes to the, this name, this nameless redeemer, the kim, kinsman redeemer that's closer to Elimelech, doesn't even have a name in the passage. The narrator doesn't think it's important for us to know who he is because, indeed, he's only in the story very briefly before he exits it. But the offer is, a, is that Naomi is selling a parcel of land, and you are her nearest relative, and thus her kinsman redeemer. Now, we don't know anything about the land that Naomi owns. This is the first time it's been mentioned it must have belonged to Elimelech, her husband, and perhaps before they left for Moab, he had sold it or sold sort of temporary use of the land uh, to somebody in the town as a way to make a little bit of money uh, in, during the course of that famine. And so uh, now perhaps the, the, with the harvest ending, the land is set to default back to Naomi's household and she's seeking to sell it uh, again for some modest short-term income. We're not, we're not really sure of the details of this, but at any rate, Uh, Boaz frames the purchase of this land as an act of redemption. That is buying back from debt, buying back from some burden um, for the widow of this man's relative Elimelech. Again, the redeemer is not named, but Boaz says to him, there's this parcel of land that Naomi is selling. And since you are the closest relative by the law, by God's law, it is your right to redeem it, if you will. And when it's just a matter of buying property, This nameless redeemer is inclined to oblige. He says, I will redeem it. And we think, oh, no, Ruth is going to end up with this rando instead of Boaz, right? So you're you're worried at this point. No, we don't want him to take it. We want him to pass on it. But so far, he said, yes, I will redeem it. And then Boaz adds a detail, a sort of fly in the ointment here. And I wonder if Boaz had a little bit of a strategy in how he went about making this offer. And so he says, by the way, when you acquire the land from Naomi, you also will uh, be marrying her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite. He's even sort of uh, careful to make sure he mentions that she's from Moab, which might have been uh, off-putting to some of these Hebrews. He says you acquire uh, marriage of uh, of, uh, the daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite, for the purpose of securing an heir to Malon, that's Ruth's deceased husband, and his father, Elimelech. Now, you might think that this fellow would welcome the addition, right? Oh, so I get land and a young Moabite wife? That sounds great, right? But his concern shifts immediately to himself and the fear of impairing his own inheritance. That's what he says in verse 6 when he sort of changes his mind. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Perhaps he has children of his own already, And so now he starts to worry that if he has a child by Ruth, that what he owns is going to have to be divided further among his current children and among the the son uh, of this other household, right? Because it'd be in the name of Elimelech and Malon, that family. And so perhaps not wanting to split up his own uh, inheritance among more children uh, than he already has, he declines. And so he says, I cannot redeem it, so take my right of redemption yourself. And so he puts it back in Boaz's court. And Boaz, of course, is all too happy to take his part. He's already promised Ruth, I will do this. I have to tell the nearer redeemer of, his, of this opportunity, but if he refuses, I will redeem you. He promised her that in the middle of chapter three. You know, sometimes we could be a little bit like this nameless redeemer. Sometimes our cost-benefit analysis of various decisions, various crossroads in our life, may be similarly inclined uh, to favor ourselves at the expense of the vulnerable in need, people around us, that we really have the power to help, but maybe it would inconvenience us too much. Maybe it would be too costly, and we think, I can't do this good because it might impair my own inheritance or Comfort or security or whatever the case may be i'm reminded here of proverbs 327 which says do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it it's a good ethic to live by so he declines the offer boaz takes the responsibility and you can see that boaz's chief concern is to honor the legacy of the dead malon ruth's deceased husband and to provide well for Ruth, who has sh- sought shelter under his wings as she came to him just the night before. Let- let's look again at Boaz's comments in verse 10, after the, the, the nameless Redeemer has declined. He says to the elders, now you have seen, you have attested, that I have purchased the land from Naomi. And then he says in verse 10, also, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place this is the this is concern for covenant this is the the legacy of a, of family continuing in the land the place that god promised to his people and so his concern is for the legacy of this family because if if naomi has no more descendants and ruth has no descendants then the name of that clan that Elimelech belongs to, dies out. And so his concern is to raise up uh, this family and to keep their name alive, that they might not be cut off uh, from his inheritance. So Boaz, again, shows us this this selfless, sort of generous uh, uh, disposition. And the elders and the people at the gate pray for Yahweh's blessing on Boaz and his new wife. It's really a, a beautiful uh, blessing that they pronounce on him they pray that Ruth would become like Rachel and Leah in providing offspring to him all right they say may uh, Yahweh make her like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel and I think the mention here of Rachel and Leah in this blessing is significant for for at least two reasons first it reminds us of the broader history in which they are involved, right? This this intimate story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is connected to a bigger history, the sto- the big story the book is telling beyond the boundaries of this one family, right? It's the, it's the people of Israel, the covenant people of God that are concerned here. And so we're reminded now of, of generations past where God had blessed Ray, uh, Rachel and Leah with children. And secondly... Rachel and Leah, who were the wives of, of Jacob, who God renames Israel, were both barren. They were unable to conceive children until God opened their wombs. And between them, they bore to Israel 12 sons who would come to be the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? And so Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel by providing these 12 sons, these 12 heirs to Jacob, to Israel, and they themselves became the, 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 the tribes of, of Israel. And that only happened because God graciously intervened and opened their wombs, that has granted them to conceive children. And Ruth, to this point, is apparently barren as well. She was married to to Malon, it seems, for about 10 years while they were in Moab and bore him no children. So now that she is marrying Boaz, like that piece of the puzzle has finally kind of fallen in place, it may be that a male heir to the household is still an impossibility. And so it is appropriate for the elders at the gate to pray for God's blessing in this way. But despite that sort of uncertainty and is God going to grant this need don't miss the significance of what's happened here Ruth and Naomi have been redeemed that was the promise that Boaz made to them in the middle of chapter three and it has now come to pass he has bought them back as it were bought them out of the predicament that they were in and he will now provide for them he has stepped into the role of kinsman redeemer he's attached himself to these women and their well-being making it his responsibility to care for them and to see to it that their needs are met for as long as they live. And at the end of the day, that's what grace does. God's grace meets the vulnerable and broken in the midst of their lack and lavishly provides their need. For the sinner in need of forgiveness Grace applies the blood of Jesus, shed for sinners, and cleanses them of all unrighteousness. For the weary in need of strength, grace affixes itself to the soul and imparts courage to carry on in faith. For the sorrowful and grieving in need of comfort, grace stoops down in the warm embrace of a Savior who is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. Because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In Boaz's redemption of Ruth and Naomi, we see a picture of the grace of God generously providing our needs. As the scene continues and we see the results of Boaz's redemption, we learn another important lesson. Grace restores what you've lost. Let's look at verses 13 through 17, which sort of wraps up the narrative of these women. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Well, God grants to Ruth what the men of the city prayed for and what Naomi has longed for. Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, this is only the second and final time that the narrator of the book of Ruth directly attributes any action to Yahweh. For the most part, what God is doing is seen and heard on the lips of these characters. But we saw once, back in chapter 1, verse 6, we were told that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. That is what the narrator told us, plainly. God visited the people Gave them food. And now, for only the second and final time that Yahweh has given direct attribution of, of anything, it says, We are told in verse 13, Yahweh gave Ruth conception and she bore a son. So when God is named by the narrator as directly being involved, what's he doing? He's giving. He visits his people and gives them food. He visits Ruth, opens her womb, and gives her a son. This is the way that Yahweh engages. With his people. When the field is fallow, only God can grant fresh growth. When the womb is barren, only God can provide new life. Interestingly, though it is Ruth who conceives and has a son, the rest of the focus of these verses is on Naomi. We don't really hear what Ruth thinks or how Ruth responds. We go back to Naomi and how she feels, and how the women in Bethlehem gather around her and respond to God's grace to her. And after all, it's really kind of her story. The book is concerned chiefly, at the family level, with Naomi's emptiness and how Yahweh goes about restoring her by his grace. Chapter 1 was all about the plight that Naomi found herself in and, and her belief that God was against her. Yahweh has dealt very bitterly with me. She said, I I went away full and I've come back empty. So the central sort of conflict at a human level in the story was Naomi's sort of lack of or loss of trust and hope in God. Because she thought, I have nothing. God has taken everything and there's nothing good in my life. God is against me. I am empty. And what the story of Ruth shows is how piece by piece Yahweh is acting intentionally, faithfully, providentially to restore what's missing, what's lacking in Naomi's life. First, uh, by restoring her hope uh, in Ruth's providential encounters with Boaz and Boaz's willingness to redeem her, we begin to see glimpses of hope. The Lord has not forsaken the living and the dead, she said at one point and then eventually restoring what she has lost by providing an heir for her husband, Elimelech, and her, indeed her son, Malon. And so God restores to Naomi what has been lost. And the women of Bethlehem, who had earlier marveled at Naomi's destitute condition when she came back into town they said, is this Naomi? And who Naomi herself had instructed to just call her bitter. Call me bitter from now on. Mara, right? That's my new name. Just call me bitter. They now have the joyful role of celebrating and speaking blessing over her. This is beautiful. Look in verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer. It's so good to have a community of people around you who can remind you of that. The Lord has not left you without a redeemer, the Lord has not left you lacking even when you feel down, even when you're depressed, even when you can't see anything good in your life, to have a community of brothers and sisters who can come around you and say, look at what God has done. He's not forgotten you. He's still there. He's still at work on your behalf. He has not left you without a Redeemer. And then they speak of of this Son. May His name be renowned in Israel like made made this son that has been born to Ruth become a prominent godly man and leader in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So this child born to Ruth restores to Naomi what she had lost both in terms of filling her heart again with love and affection for this new child in the wake of her son's deaths, and in terms of actual material and physical provision, as her grandson would no doubt help care for her in her old age and to carry on the name and legacy of her husband, Elimelech. What's been taken has been restored. What's been lost has been redeemed. And so she takes the child onto her lap and it says becomes his nurse, meaning simply that she helped take care of him, as many grandmothers do. Here again, we see in Yahweh's provision for Naomi an example of how he cares for all his children. The things in your life that feel broken beyond repair, the relationships strained, opportunities squandered, years wasted, dreams unrealized. These are precisely the places where God wants to work for your good and for your blessing. In Joel 2.25, the Lord says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Time is not a problem for God. Lost years are not a problem for God. He redeems and restores what we consider is lost and done and without hope. He may not resurrect your Elimelech, but he just may have an Obed in store for you. John Piper says, in every loss that the godly endure, God is already plotting for their gain. And so the women of Bethlehem pronounce with joy in verse 17, a son of God has been born to Naomi. Well, the story is basically over now. Verse 17 mentions quickly that they named Ruth's son Obed and that he fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And if that seems like an odd detail to end the story with, perhaps it won't seem so strange after you consider the concluding paragraph in verses 18 through 22. Let's look at those together. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Grace reaches farther than you know. You know, if you're speed reading through the Old Testament, if you're on your kind of like, yearly plan and you're just trying to get through it i gotta keep on pace you might just skim right past these last five verses right you see you get to one that you think oh no it's another one of those lists with all these impossible hebrew names and they don't really mean that much to me and i don't know what to make of it so you might decide you can just safely skip right over that part right and get on to the action what's the next part? okay first samuel that starts with some action let's just get past this genealogy and get to the, the good stuff right but oh how you would miss out What glorious mountain peaks of redeeming grace you would fail to see on the horizon because your eyes are focused on the dotted lines on the road in front of you. The genealogy at the end of Ruth helps us to situate the story of this one Hebrew family into the larger history of God's covenant people, Israel, which in turn helps us to connect this story to our own lives and our own part in God's story of redemption. I want you to notice three things about this genealogy. Number one, there are 10 generations listed, 10 generations. Perez, Hezron, Ram, Amminadab, Nashan, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, 10 names, 10 men. This is a selective genealogy, meaning that some generations have been left out, which is pretty common in Hebrew literature. Famously uh, true of the genealogy that begins Matthew's Gospel, where there's 14 generations in each block leading down to uh, the birth of Jesus. And the reason for that is basically that the the author, the one writing this genealogy, has a a theological or, or spiritual idea that he wants to communicate. And the number of generations is more important than the actual sort of making sure that every generation is meticulously accounted for. There are places in the Old Testament where that is more meticulous and there's nobody left out. You go to First Chronicles, you see this super-duper like five-chapter long list of genealogies. They're there. So it's not as though it's false and something's missing. But the author has something else in mind. Why ten generations? Here's what I think. The ten generations of male heirs to Perez with Boaz in the 7th position and David in the 10th position, make up for the 10 years of famine and death experienced by Naomi in Moab. She was in Moab for 10 years, and she comes back, and Yahweh redeems her, and we see that they are connected in this family tree of 10 generations. Each generation representing one of the years that the locust had stolen, if you will. While she was in Moab. Just as the Bethlehem women declared to Naomi that her grandson Obed would be to her a restorer of life, so these ten generations of Naomi's family at the close of the book demonstrate that Yahweh has redeemed on a far grander scale than she ever imagined or even knew the devastation of those ten dreadful years of sojourn that opened the book. Ten generations. Secondly, notice that the genealogy culminates in David. We've already made mention of it before. You saw David mentioned in verse 17 at the sort of conclusion of the narrative portion uh, of the book. What's the big deal with it culminating in David? Naomi is the grandmother of Obed, and Obed will become the grandfather of David, who, of course, will become king. Reigning over the United Kingdom of Israel in the brightest and most prosperous period, in the nation's checkered history. And so the crisis implied by the book's opening line, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Right, That's what starts out. We're in a dark period. There is no king, and chaos reigns, and famine abounds. The crisis implied by the book's opening line is answered by the hope of a godly king in the book's closing line. So the fact that it culminates in David is a way of saying the problem we started out with doesn't exist forever. God is working to answer those needs, those deficiencies. And it reminds us that the story is much bigger than just Naomi and her family. It's the story of a nation, the story of God's covenant people and how he provides for them. And then finally, the third thing I want you to see about this Genealogy is that it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. David is a shepherd from Bethlehem who is anointed by God as king. But first he must suffer and be rejected and be hounded by his enemies before finally coming to power in Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, a far-off great-great-great-grandson of David, is himself born in Bethlehem, the city of David, sent by God the Father to be king over his people. But before he could take his place of authority, he would first suffer and be rejected and be killed by his enemies as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, Jesus said of himself in John 10. Revelation 22, 16 tells us that Jesus Christ is both the root and the descendant of David. He's the root of David's family tree because as the eternal son of God, he is himself the giver of life. John's gospel opens by saying that in him was life and his life was the light of men. Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the giver of life and in that way is the root of David. David comes from the life that the son of God himself gives. And he's simultaneously a branch on David's family tree because as a human being, he is part of a human family. And he comes into the world not by floating down from heaven with a halo and angel wings, but as a helpless infant, conceived by the Holy Spirit and growing inside the womb of the Virgin Mary, the offspring of his ancestor, David. The reason we will celebrate Christmas this Saturday is because Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Don't skip the genealogies. The message of the book of Ruth is basically this. God is working in the details of your life, including your sufferings, losses, and hardships, to provide a redemption far beyond your wildest hopes and most daring imaginations. God's purposes to redeem a people for himself and to bless all the families of the earth through the life, death, and resurrection and near return of the Lord Jesus are so sure and are under such meticulous provincial guidance that they cannot and will not be derailed by any amount of famine, sojourn, bereavement, poverty, or despair. And in a world gone mad, and after a couple of years worth of social unrest and political upheaval and medical crises, isn't that really good news? Because a son has been born to Naomi, as the women of Bethlehem celebrated, we are therefore able to say with the prophet Isaiah, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince.